The following show first aired on KZYX, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond in March of 2023. You are listening to KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at KZYX.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, a listener-supported community radio. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. This is Chad Swimmer, your host. Today, the show is focused on Casper 500, the controversial timber harvest plan that led to the current movement to change the management of Jackson State Forest. To be totally forthright, most of you listening know that I'm not an impartial observer or a reporter. I've been advocating against this plan for three years. Today, though, I will try my best to be objective and fair. Certainly, in these last three years, my views have grown enormously. They couldn't help but to considering all the really educated people I've been speaking with. I have asked people on all sides of the discussion to contribute, and I'm happy to report that in the next hour, you will hear from Cal Fire State Forest Program Manager Kevin Conway, California State Facilitator Kim Rodriguez, Ph.D., Nobel Laureate Evan Mills, Ph.D., Climate Scientist J.P. O'Brien, Ph.D., Linda Perkins, an educator and a noted THP analyst, as well as from a few other important residents of the Mendocino Coast. With this information, hopefully you'll leave more informed and equipped to decide for yourself what would be the best possible course forward. We will get to the show in just a second after listening to a little bit more of this Gene Parsons Banjo Dog, recorded live at the Arena Theater in 2001. First, though, let me give you the cliff notes of what exactly is Casper 500. This is an over 500-acre timber harvest plan just south and east of neighborhoods off of Casper Orchard Road. It was approved in the first months of the pandemic with only one public comment submitted. Many of us complained that it was slipped under the public's nose when we were thinking more about COVID-19. But to be fair, the public, including myself and all of those protesting now, were not engaged in those days and would not likely have paid any attention if it weren't for the appearance of the blue rings of spray paint on the trees marked for cut. Cal Fire at that time was also not promoting public engagement. Cal Fire at that time was not really promoting public engagement or awareness. As former Cal Fire Forest Manager Mike Powers said in May of 2020, clearly we need to do a better job of letting the public know what we are doing. This timber harvest plan, Casper 500, was written as single tree and group selection, but the biggest bone of contention for those against the plan was that many large trees were marked, including over 100 that were between 4 and 6 feet diameter, including quite a few that were right next to popular trails. The plan was sold in January of 2021 to Willits Redwood, who contracted with Anderson Logging to carry out operations. A tree sit and direct action stopped the logging in June of 2021, and it has been on hold since. Numerous modifications have been proposed and the original timber sale contract is set to expire in May. It is our understanding that a new timber sale contract will be written, this time with the input of the public and of the POMO stakeholders. And one more important piece of information for understanding the upcoming conversation is the JAG, is the Jackson Advisory Group. It is the main avenue for public input into working of the largest of our state forests in California, Jackson Demonstration State Forest. 
Now to somebody whose voice many of you will recognize, it's Linda Perkin, a person with over 30 years experience reading one of the most boring documents on the whole planet, a timber harvest plan. Linda Perkins, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you, Chad? I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you here on the show, and I'm looking forward to um, hearing about the March 15th JAG meeting. You told me that you left the meeting feeling very optimistic. Can you elaborate? (laughs) I'll try. Um, I don't know if very optimistic uh, is the term, but certainly hopeful. Uh, Chad, I'm I'm somewhat uh, cynical because I was on the 2011 JAG, whose report the Board of Forestry Uh, just shelved essentially. So I have a deep-seated distrust, but I think it's very exciting that CAL FIRE has agreed uh, not only to uh, hire a facilitator, but hire a facilitator uh, such as Kim, who is so uh, highly skilled in that area and who has a background uh, not only as a registered professional forester, but as um, an environmental uh, scientist and environmental policy uh, a student and, and a PhD. So um, I think that she uh, basically, Kim is a, a listener. Uh, I felt as though she was able to uh, make us feel safe and make us feel comfortable uh, in the setting. Um, I think they've been listening to us. Uh, we've asked that, for example, the meetings be held indoors, the business part of the meetings, not the field trip part, obviously, but the business part of the meeting be held indoors. Mm-hmm. rather than alongside Highway 20 in the <laughs> cold and the noise <laughs> and the discomfort of standing uh, for that length of time yeah. uh, on the side of the road. And so we've been, I think we all think we're being listened to to some degree. And of course the proof is in the pudding and we'll see. Yeah. But yeah, I, I have that willing uh, suspension of disbelief temporarily. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what else was not- notable to you about this meeting? Um, I think one of the more notable things was that when we went into the uh, field, into the woods, to look at the proposed shaded fuel breaks uh, for which the JAG needs to give their approval, uh, that Kim brought up actually that the JAG is committed and the CAL FIRE is committed to co-management with the tribes and that that has not been defined and that the tribes had not been out uh, to look at this. And what did the JAG think about that? And the JAG agreed uh, to postpone their final decision uh, on whether or not they approved of these fuel breaks until the tribes had had an opportunity to be invited, get out if that's what they wanted to do, to look at the fuel breaks and to give feedback to the JAG on what they thought. Um, their, their tribal representative on the JAG, Reno Franklin, wasn't there. And the JAG was also interested in getting his opinion before they move forward. So uh, that was unprecedented. Is there anything else you'd like to, to tell us? Uh, just thank you to uh, Kim and to Cal Fire uh, for having her. And I hope that she continues. Have you ever but- thanked Cal Fire publicly before? Uh Actually, I, th- I think I have. <laughs> I can't remember the occasion. I've even apologized to them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to talk to uh, um, uh, Luke Kendall, who's the unit chief of Cal Fire, wh- while we were at the meeting. And we were talking about something contentious. And he said, I think you're wrong. I said, I think you're wrong. 
And he said, well, if I'm wrong, I'll apologize. And he said, if you're wrong, I want you to eat your hat. And I said, only if you cook it, Luke, and then I'll eat it. So, nice. um, so it was good. I think there's some openings for us. I think that's the exciting part is yeah. that maybe we can make some connections and not feel as though every question we have has to go through a Public Records Act request. Mm-hmm. There can actually be a human being there who says, who gives us an answer quickly and simply. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've noticed that about Kevin Conway, as opposed to his predecessors, that I have emailed and texted asking for information and usually get it really quickly. And I I quite appreciate that. And in the past, as many people know, I've filed more than one Public Records Act request just to get information. Right. So I think all of those are good signs, uh, Chad. And uh and I think we, we have a chance of getting some of the things that we want, particularly getting the inclusion of the, the tribal people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Linda. And I look forward to seeing you again. Okay. Thank you, Chad. That was environmental activist and Pulitzer Prize winning champion THP reader, Linda Perkins. We are talking about things that are happening in Jackson Demonstration State Forest at 80 square miles, the largest in California state forest system. Now let's go to state forest program manager, Kevin Conway. Kevin Conway is the California state demonstration forest program manager for Cal Fire. He is a registered professional forester with over 15 years of management experience working for private landowners, the Board of Forestry, the state's tree mortality task force, and now for managing California's demonstration forests. On many issues relating to forestry, Kevin and I don't see eye to eye. But as an activist working on the Jackson Demonstration State Forest issue, I have seen firsthand Kevin's willingness to engage, his openness, his prompt responses to texts and emails, and his genuine desire to improve on the Jackson Advisory Group process, and his refreshing availability. Also, for what it's worth, he's shown up to more than one meeting with numerous loggers present driving a Prius. Kevin Conway, California State Demonstration Forest Program Manager, Thanks for driving your Prius from Sacramento to here and back again and again. And many thanks for taking the time to join us on the Ecology Hour. How are you? Thank you, Chad, for having me here today. Uh, doing doing great and looking forward to talking with you and your and your audience about the great things we have going on at Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, how do you feel about yesterday's Jackson Advisory Group meeting? Uh, you know, those are always uh, very emotionally draining days, I think, for, for all involved. But it's a, a great opportunity for us to uh, talk with the community, uh, get some feedback and input from our advisors on, you know, uh, how we're doing and uh, give us some guidance on on what we are planning on doing in the future. Uh, you know, the one big item that we covered yesterday was going out to a fuel break on the uh, what we call the Road 510 in Mitchell Creek, which is a very important project to us. Uh, and we you know, got some uh, uh, some good information on how to move forward a successful project out there. Affect the community of, of Mitchell Creek and the resources on Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Mm-hmm. Are you having another public meeting on the fuel break project? We will. So it's. Uh, you know, kind of a two-pronged effort right now. We've got the fuel break on Road 510 that's in Mitchell Creek uh, for JDSF, but then we also are extending that all the way out the community, uh, tying back into Highway 1 to give uh, emergency ingress and egress uh, and make some improvements to that for uh, for the community down there on Mitchell Creek Drive and Simpson Drive. You have to correct me if I'm wrong with my uh, with my geography here. 
Yeah, no problem. And we are going to talk to you, your, um, what do we call him? Your coworker, uh, Luke Kendall and Kyle Farmer from UC Extension, either the next show or the show after about this project and generally about fires and in the Redwood forest ecosystem. Got the right folks. And I'll, I'll just clarify, you know, the reason why it's it's kind of a two-pronged uh, project is because of the resources that are developed on the state forest system can only be stemmed on the state forest system. So we're not able to expend our own funds and resources, you know, extending out into the community. Uh, you know, we we help uh, support the community by the things that we do on the forest specifically. Yeah. So what is the status of the Casper 500 Timber Harvest Plan? So the Casper 500 Timber Harvesting Plan doesn't expire until um, uh, 2025 with the option for it to stay valid until 2027. Uh, but with that, uh, you know, to actually implement the timber harvesting plan, we do a what we call our timber sale. And so that is our contract with Willits Redwood Company to come out and actually perform the work uh, that we have, uh, you know, planned, permitted, and uh, uh, and designed. <laughs> and so that timber sale expires on May 15, 2023. Uh, we've made some pretty significant changes in response to our, our tribal and community outreach that we've done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, with that, we are still working with Willits Redwood on whether uh, the contract as uh, written is still is still viable, but it's a very likely scenario that that timber sale will be allowed to expire on May 15, 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, with that, you know, that will allow us, Cal Fire, you know, who is still very committed to finding a viable project uh, within that footprint to, you know, go back with our tribal partners, community, and our, our contractors uh, to put together another package that, you know, is viable, you know, will be supported by the community and will successfully allow us to achieve some of the objectives that we have there in the, in the Casper 500 area. Mm -hmm. So you said objective, and we, we talk a lot about management objectives. What is a management objective in terms of forest management? Well, you know, so the objectives for uh, the Jackson Demonstration State Forest are laid out in our management plan. Uh, overall, you know, it is to provide for a, a resilient and healthy forest ecosystem that provides for the whole suite of values that are cherished by Californians. So, you know, clean air, clean water, fish and wildlife habitat, carbon sequestration, research, recreation, uh, forest products, and economic opportunities. Um, you know, within that, we have, uh, you know, when we put together a project, you know, we've got all of these, these desires, right? And some of them are complementary, some of them are competing. Uh, you know, we don't hold any one value uh, over the top of any. And so that's really part of the uh, the planning for the project and the design of the project. And you know what's allowed for within our management plan is that flexibility of of how do we balance all of these values to put together uh, a, a project that you know delivers the the best total uh, you know suite of of values and products for the for the community. Um, and, you know, within each timber harvesting plan area, within each area of the forest, uh, you know, we we balance those a little bit differently. And that's really what provides some of the, the very diverse conditions that you have out there uh, on the forest. And that's why when you're driving through the forest, you know, you you will notice that we don't have just one approach to our forest management. 
you know, it's constantly changing uh, over space, and it's also constantly changing over time as we get uh, as we get feedback, you know, from our past management, and and look at what the current needs are from society. Mm-hmm. So, what are those specific objectives that the Casper Five Hundred THP would accomplish? So, the Casper Five Hundred THP, uh, it's been about twenty five years since our last harvest in the area, uh, and so you know we're going to provide for forest health and resiliency through the the density reduction or you know controlling competition. Uh, and you know you'll notice the majority of the trees that are marked for half harvest are you know probably in that eighteen to thirty inch range. So there's kind of uh, you know, kind of early adult redwood trees, right? And, you know, as they've trans- transitioned from, you know, their youth, right? They're taking up more space. They're growing, growing bigger, not just taller, but wider, like some of us, uh, <laughs> some of us old humans. <laughs> and, they, and they need more space. They need more resources to, to continue. And so, uh, you know, controlling competition in those trees uh, really allows them to continue to grow at their maximum potential. Uh, and you know, be healthy and resilient against uh, whatever whatever kind of disturbance is coming their way. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to get this stand on onto uh, you know, we're taking it from uh, you know when it was it was reset or you know clear cut all the old growth off of it back in the 1850s or 60s. And we're trying to make this into a multi age stand. You know, our end goal is to have three to five age classes of trees. You know, very diverse age sizes uh, throughout the forest. And so, you know, this harvest is designed to, to help us, us get, get there as well. Uh, we also are going to improve recreation through the adoption of the user-built trail, uh, the Blue Gum Trail. Uh, we're going to improve fish and wildlife habitat through the decommissioning of the old historic road that's going to become the Blue Gum Trail. Uh, and this is going to build upon us uh, improving salmonid access to Blue Gum Creek from Casper during the 1990s habitat. So, you know, these things over time, you know, we kind of build on each other and we continue to improve these, these habitats. Uh, and then for, for research, this is gonna be the second entry in what we call a cluster selection or these uh, little quarter acre group selections uh, to really test how small of group openings we can uh, use in redwood forest that still provide adequate light and resources for regeneration. Uh, so again, you know, sticking with that sustainability theme, you know, how are we going to recruit this next, uh, this next age class of redwoods to be, you know, within that three to five age classes that are, you know, over time are, are sustainable forestry. Uh, and then we're going to continue to remove the non-native eucalyptus from uh, the old orchard that, that's out there. And we're going to do so through some innovative means uh, using non-chemical uh, uh, methods. I'd love to hear more about that, but that will have to be down the line. So in the timber harvest plan documents, one of the items is the cumulative impact section, which includes an investigation of alternatives to the planned operations. Were alternatives looked at for this THP and what would be the problem from management's point of view of not carrying out the THP? Yeah, alternatives are a big part of the uh, the CEQA process. And, you know, I, I think I explained how we look at the full suite of values that can be provided in this area. And we try to, you know, take those all in and, and come up with the uh, uh, with the highest benefit project that we can. Uh, and, you know, hopefully those values or management objectives that I just, you know, listed above, such as improved recreation, forest health, uh, continuing on our research, improving fish habitat, uh, you know, really show that we selected or had a pretty compelling reason for for selecting uh, the chosen alternative as as the path forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to say on the side that 
um, Kevin knew that coming on the show, he wasn't going to get all easy, friendly questions. And I really appreciate you you addressing these. Uh, this one is um, almost a year ago now. Cal Fire did a number of educational walks out in the Casper 500 area. And Mike Janai of the Board of Forestry, previously, uh, he was the director of MRC, Mendocino Redwood Company, I think, and was also um, on the Forest Stewardship Council. Mike Janai and Stephen Solette, a Humboldt State School of Forestry professor who's a, one of the foremost people researching tall old redwoods in the world, they said publicly on the record that the area of Casper 500 around the Mama Tree looked distinctly like high grading. How do you respond to that? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm going to have a hard time responding to, uh, you know, statements that you're taking out of context from, from anybody, and I'm not going to necessarily directly respond to that, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about whether or not we're high grading or not. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would think uh, if you went to both those folks, they would both agree that the overall approach to management on JDSF is is pretty top notch. Uh, but you know, I won't put words in your mouth. I'll let you go back and ask them themselves. Um, you know, the the term high grading is is usually thrown around as a pejorative term, and you know, it usually refers to somebody who is really driven by short term profits over you know long term management of the forest. Um, and so, you know, I, I would welcome, you know, you and, and all of your users to please come out to, to JDSF and, and have a look around and enjoy some of our recreational facilities to see that we really are committed to long-term stewardship of this land. You know, we've been owners or managers, stewards of this land for the last 70 years. Uh, so most of what you see, you know, we have touched in the past. Uh, you know, I will say, be the first to say that, you know, our all of our management isn't, you know, exactly what we would like to see today. Uh, but I, you know, will also, you know, in that same sentence, defend the the uh, the choices that people made and that they did so within the context of of their time and what they thought was the best way for them to to meet the state's mission for the forest and to provide, you know, for the for the local community. Um, you know, I, I probably also just throw out too. You know, I mean, I've I've seen a number of uh, presentations from your climate scientists from the coalition, J.P. O'Brien. You know, with his lidar data looking up and down the North Coast, and you know, JDSF uh, as a carbon dense forest. You know, he compares it pretty well to uh, you know some state parks and and places. Um, I, I guess I would just you know suggest that the the outcome that you see when you're out there at JDSF is not what you're going to get when you have a forest that's managed through high grading. It really, you know, represents, you know, long-term investments, long-term thought, long-term stewardship. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, I appreciate you addressing it. And I realized that the context is really large. And I looked at the stand tables that you've, you've put out and the stand tables for people who don't know are basically just graphs of the heights of the trees in a certain stand. And it could be in this case, the heights of the trees within the Casper 500 stand and correct me if I'm wrong. And within it is also the heights of the trees that are planned to be harvested. And, you know, clearly that, that the majority of the trees were not the large ones, but I want to go to say Mendocino Redwood company right now, mostly they aim at about 20, inch trees and why do you feel like the foresters the cal fire foresters who wrote this plan felt that it was important to mark trees larger than four feet diameter and there were uh, i think 106 trees march marked over four feet diameter yeah there's a, a lot in that question but um so you know cal fire we mark across all 
age classes and size classes, but we have a permanent protection for old growth trees. You know, so that's not necessarily defined by uh, you know diameter in and of itself, but uh, but it's age and in uh, a lot of times, you know, it's the function that it has in the ecosystem. So some of those uh, characteristics in the in the tree that provide you know the values that only really develop over time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so you know, with that, we uh, uh, you know, you're correct. We were marking trees over 48 inches in the Casper 500, and um, I believe it was closer to 200 trees, uh, but that was out of a total tree count over 48 inches of 2,000 trees. So mm -hmm. you're talking about 10% of the trees that are there. And, you know, when you look at those stand tables too, you know, you got to think about those as a, as a point in history. So if you look at those stand tables over time and how those trees are progressing, right, how that tree, how fast that tree's going from, you know, 10 inches to 20 inches to 30 inches to 40 inches and you know, out beyond, uh, you know, we... We really are recruiting trees into that higher, you know, over 48 inch class faster than we are, you know, harvesting them. So, you know, much like the rest of our forest that we're manage, managing in a very sustainable manner, you know, our treatment of how we how we harvest large trees is, is treated much the same. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'll just address the, the two conditions that you'll probably find out there where you see these large trees marked. You know, one, you're going to find large trees that are, you know, either part of a, a stump sprout cluster uh, with other large trees or thinning them are going to make those 48 inch trees into 60 inch trees. And then you're also going to find that in cases where you've got, uh, you know, healthy 28, you know, 30 inch trees down in the understory competing for light and nutrients and just waiting for that big tree to, you know, get out of their way so they can, you know, turn on its growth engine and become that 48 inch tree in the future. And so, you know, those are the two conditions where you're going to see those trees marked. And, you know, that shows our, you know, commitment to this being a sustainable process, not just harvesting large trees for the sake of harvesting large trees, but, you know, to really uh, achieve those silvicultural objectives of sustainability over time. So the, this is my last question. And the present legislative mandate for California's demonstration forests is, first and foremost, according to Board of Forestry Policy in the California Public Resource Code, as commercial timberlands. And I think one of the things that's clear is, is that Mike Powers, the, the forest manager until last year, said, well, you know, we're clearly not doing a very good job letting people know what we're doing because people don't understand what's happening in the forest. And for those of us like me who see, oh, wow, there's some big trees marked for a cut. Why are they doing that? Uh, but I think that a lot of the uh, of people's critique of Cal Fire's policy in the forest is is that is that there's a profit motive that that there's supposed to be some amount of money generated to pay the forest expenses. But last year, the California Natural Resources Agency allocated what ten million dollars for the forest, um, independent of timber harvest, and I think this year five million dollars. And with that, is that going to change Cal Fire's um, management at all and make it possibly something that people can trust more if they can see that the decisions weren't being shaped by income generation? Let's see. Maybe I'll, I'll start with the uh, uh, with with the the mandate. You know, because I, I hear a lot about this is that you know we are mandated to be a commercial forest. You know, therefore we are only driven by by profit motive and. You know, I'll, I'll just go back to, you know, inviting you and your listeners to please come around the forest and, 
you know, take a look around for yourself. And, uh, you know, I think I think our management stewardship of the board speaks for itself that, you know, we are not driven primarily by by profit. Uh, you know, that said, sustainable uh, economies are just as important to forest management as the, uh, you know, the, the, the other suite of of benefits that we are trying to provide. Uh, and, you know, you are correct. Like, you know, we are challenged to be a demonstration to other private landowners of, you know, what is possible to manage your forest uh, without giving away your, your economic objectives and, you know, how to manage your forest, you know, outside of only getting, uh, you know, public grants or public monies to do some type of, of forest management. And so, you know, I, I would see the type of management we're doing is maybe akin to some of the, uh, uh, the folks that are selling carbon credits on their forest where, you know, they're deferring harvests, they're growing older forests, they're holding higher levels of biomass, you know, they're establishing set-asides or increasing the size of their, of their buffers, uh, you know, and, and these things are going to lead to forest conditions, you know, much like we have here. And, you know, so, so I would see that we are, you know, probably, you know, 20 to 30 years advanced to what you're going to start seeing on some of those other lands. And, and that is to, you know, uh, uh, provide within a forest that, you know, you haven't given up those those economic objectives. You know, this whole suite of uh, you know clean water, wildlife, habitat, carbon sequestration. Um, you know, all this uh, everything that the state you know is is encouraging man uh, managers to to provide. You know, and the reason why there's like real money going to to these folks is to provide habitat similar to what we you know already enjoy because we've been uh, having this you know lighter touch harvest for for so long. Um, as far as the uh, the the one-time investments that the state is making in the state forest system, mm -hmm. uh, you know they're a huge benefit to us. You know they are extremely welcome. But with those, that is not just to uh, support you know the the state forest system as we are. You know those come with a challenge to you know how can you improve your recreation? How can you improve your research? Uh, with these. So, you know, we are challenged to make those investments, uh, you know, in ways that that meet that challenge uh, versus just our, our our standard management. So, you know, those are not meant to be a replacement of the revenue that we generate ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, but to augment that so that we, you know, continue to provide a high level of service to the to the community. Uh, and, you know, we are making those investments, uh, you know, again, primarily in, in recreational improvements that you should be seeing out there on the forest uh, and also in some of the research that we that we have coming out. And, you know, we're really excited about, uh, you know, we've got a, a carbon flux tower coming that's uh, going to fill a void of knowledge in the redwood forest of how does it contribute to uh, to our climate change mitigation goals. Uh, we're going to set up a long term experiment uh, called the adaptive management experiment to uh, identify different stand conditions that will be resilient against some of these uh, disturbances that we expect in the future. And we expect them to be, you know, exacerbated by the effects of climate change. These things I think set us well to be a part of the states uh, acting or answering, you know, all those questions and providing all of those benefits. Uh, but, you know, they were in no way meant to, you know, only provide the same level or reduced level of service, uh, you know, that, that Cal Fire already does on, on JDSF. They are, really designed to help us, uh, you know, meet the additional needs and the, the larger needs of the community that, you know, we're finding from all public forests, not just JDSF. Well, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? I just, uh, you know, I appreciate your uh, your time and your, your passion about uh, JDSF. 
uh, Chad and um, thank you for you know making this platform available for me to talk with some of your uh, your listeners and I just encourage everybody to come out to Jackson and uh, enjoy whatever it is that you like to do in the forest. Uh, we would love to have you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. All right. Thanks, Chad. Take care. And remember, if you want to participate in this robust discussion that's going on, and hopefully a real groundbreaking discussion, then come to the Jackson Advisory Group meeting on June 6th, probably at 9 o'clock, and location to be announced. If you're not sure, put it on your calendar and call up CAL FIRE 707-964-5674, and they will tell you exactly where it's going to be. Since you are listening to this, we know that you are a devotee of public radio. We also know that there is more competition than ever in history for your limited time. With all of the powerhouse stations in New York, Chicago, and L.A. putting out well-funded new podcasts every day, it is literally impossible to listen to even 1% of the shows about the subjects that you love and care about. Considering this, we ask you to set aside some time for us, locally produced radio, with guests you may know, may even share coffee with in the morning, talking about issues and places that are a part of your everyday life. Think global. Listen local. At least some of the time. We appreciate it for sure. That music was passed my way by my friends, the Miller Family Band. So if you haven't gathered by now, the Jackson Advisory Group, also known as the JAG, is the main avenue for the public to have any input in the management of Jackson. And recently, the state appointed Dr. Kim Rodriguez as a facilitator to help move things forward. We are going to hear from Kim Rodriguez right now. And Kim is a registered professional forester, a certified facilitator, and a mediator who is committed to working with resource leaders and the engaged public to seek understanding and agreements that can help build new research, restoration, and demonstration efforts at Jackson in order to meet the goals of the new vision for JDSF. Kim served nearly a year on the Board of Forestry and was a previous Ecology Hour host on KZYX, public radio from Mendocino County and beyond. Good morning, Kim Rodriguez. How are you? I am excellent this beautiful day. How about you? Doing very well. Thanks for joining us on the program today. And I'm wondering if you can talk briefly about yourself, your background in forestry, working for the state, how you got interested in facilitation, and how you got involved in the Jackson State Forest issue. Well, my path to forestry was a bit meandering. Um, I started out in chemical engineering at UC Berkeley back in 1977. And I had a really difficult time uh, with my first internship with Dow Chemical. And so I looked for another major and I didn't know forestry was even an option at Berkeley, you know, and I love the woods and I thought, oh, I'll try that. And it was awesome. Like, it was unbelievable to me that summer camp was like, uh, eye-opening for me. Like I could get paid to work in the woods. This is awesome. <laughs> and so I loved genetics and I loved chemistry. So forest genetics was my passion back then and reforestation efforts. But during Redwood summer, when I was working for the timber industry, I realized that there was a lot of common issues and concerns that the industry shared with some of the environmentalists and some of the public that just weren't being addressed and were being, um, ignored really. And so I felt like it was time to leave the industry and try to solve it through science and education. So that's when I joined UC Cooperative Extension and kind of changed my career path. 
Facilitation came later because I realized I didn't have the skills to actually facilitate the conversations that I could see were potential to helping us solve these complex issues. So I took a couple of baptism by fire public meetings where I got skewered and then I got trained. <laughs> where did you get trained in facilitation? The best training I ever had was a nonprofit. They were then based out of San Francisco and Boston. I think they only have their Boston office now, but they're worldwide interaction associates really based on collaborative processes, working with people with like the Dalai Lama and others on really complex social political issues. And it's founded in a, a belief and a process that engages all of the parties in an honest dialogue around building strong relationships, really focused on open, transparent communications and focused on results that are defined by the group. What are the group's goals? And um, that's what I think is so exciting for Jackson is uh, Cal Fire has their goals. Uh, the coalition has their goals. Uh, the trail stewards have their goals. Um, the public in general has diverse goals. And yet those goals haven't yet been the driver. It's usually been the agendas driven primarily by CAL FIRE's immediate time sensitive goals. And so I think the facilitated process has a potential to open that up and let the J Jackson advisory group members with input from the public, with input from CAL FIRE, run these public meetings in a very different way um, and build the agendas in advance. So now we know our next meeting is June 6th the Jackson advisory group members can listen to the public and develop their own priorities based on what they've heard and start developing these agendas in advance. And I have great news for you, Chad. Uh, the, the Jackson advisory group and CAL FIRE uh, agreed to open up their calendars one more time and look for a Saturday meeting in 2023 to accommodate people who work and can't be part of those open public conversations actively engaging because they work. So we will be looking for a Saturday date and uh, that shall come up in 2023. And as soon as it does, we can start building that agenda. That's wonderful. I was working at Fort Bragg Middle School the other day for the JAG meeting and I wasn't there, but I heard great reports about your facilitation and that a number of people from very different perspectives said that they thought it was possibly the best JAG meeting ever. Well, you know, the bar wasn't set too high, so I'm not going to take a lot of credit. Um, I just know that I know that working with Kevin and his leadership team, um, I feel like we can do better. Each meeting will do better. And uh, now that the JAG feels empowered and uh, hopefully the public feels a little more confident in the JAG's empowerment, we can build agendas that really focus on the priority issues as driven by all the concerned community. And I mean everyone, like there were people in the room um, that were there from various aspects of the timber industry who I could sense felt frustrated and perhaps even angry, but never voiced any input. And so I want to have a process where everyone feels comfortable with whatever the input is to respectfully share it. And let's, let's start to build shared understanding first. And if we seek understanding, perhaps, perhaps we can start to build agreement. And even if it's small agreements, we can celebrate those. Mm-hmm. I want to back up slightly. How did you get involved in the Jackson issue? Were you brought in by the state? So I, I understand that my colleagues um, from my um, past institution, UC Cooperative Extension, had reached out to CAL FIRE early in this process and encouraged them to think about a facilitator. 
but none of them wanted to do it. And they have different aspects of why, because they are engaged in research at Jackson. So there could be a conflict of interest there. I'm not doing research or education at Jackson. So they suggested me, but members of the JAG themselves had recommended that, you know, a facilitator would really help guide the process because I have no stake in the outcome. I'm not engaged in the issues themselves, but I am educated enough to understand the issues. And I've learned how to appreciate that everyone looks at and experiences the forest in very, very different ways. And I appreciate those different lenses and I don't see the world in black and white. I only really see lots of a potential shades of gray and rainbow. So we can find this. I think we can do it. And so at Cal Fire, Kevin Conway specifically called me in November and asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And he asked me if I would do the four public meetings this year, um, beginning with the one that just happened in March. And I said, why don't we do one first and see how it goes for you, see how it goes for the public, and also see how it goes for me. Because (laughs) I wanted to make sure that everybody was committed to the process, because if Cal Fire wasn't committed and didn't, didn't demonstrate commitment, well, then I didn't want to be part of it. And if the public didn't feel open to letting me have a chance, then I really, and, and really, I, I understand that there are many members of the public that chose not to come and I respect their choices. I mean, they're angry and they're frustrated and they're looking for different ways to resolve the conflicts. And um, my hope is that eventually all the people concerned will feel comfortable coming and be part of the process. So Cal Fire reached out and I think Kevin and his team clearly demonstrated a sincere commitment to make this work. That's great. When you were first brought on board or we heard about it, you stressed that you were a facilitator and not a mediator. What is the difference? Facilitation as I practice it is bringing as many diverse voices in to address the existing problems and concerns and really facilitating conversations around them. The definition of to facilitate is to make easy, which is kind of a joke um, because collaboration is hard. And the middle of the word collaboration is labor. It's a lot of work and it takes a lot of work. But my role as facilitator is to try to pick up the threads of potential agreement and bring those to the group as a proposal. And that's a very different role as a facilitator than a mediator because, and I have mediated and I have successfully mediated past legal conflicts with Pacific Lumber Company and the community back in the 90s uh, down in the Redway area. And that mediation process is very different. It's working individually first with the interested parties, not in an open collaborative way, but in a very confidential way to find out what would it take for you to feel like this problem was resolved and what would it take for the other party. And then after all that research is done, bringing the parties together and offering proposals for their consideration and discussion. Mm -hmm. So it's not as inclusive and it's usually done with a legally binding objective that agreements that come out of that mediated agreement are then going to guide those groups going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And just to, to, to be up front, I really do think that there's a role for mediated agreements at the higher government to government level with the tribes and the state government agencies empowered to make decisions. I think an, a mediated agreements discussion at that level would be really powerful and would be critical because it could help inform the struggle we're having now where we're talking about co-management at the JAG level with no tribes present 
because that government to government conversation really hasn't been resolved yet. So yeah. we're in the dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not volunteering and I'm not even sure I'm the best person, but I think someone in the higher levels of government should consider a mediated discussion with the um, tribal leaders and the state leaders and really work out what does this mean operationally. Makes a ton of sense. Thank you. One of the things I've really realized in my own um, activism over three decades and working with many different groups is there's just such a history of pain and betrayal between Mm -hmm. just about every social and ethnic group in the United States that every meeting could take a mediator. And, you know, we're all working it out on our own with no training and there's a lot of pain involved. It's so true. So true. That's why, um, you know, it was a little upsetting at one point in the meeting when people uh, in the field were making judgments about, you know, why so-and-so wasn't uh, in the meeting or why so-and-so didn't come. And I just said, no, we can't make assumptions about why people choose not to participate I absolutely understand and empathize with many people that feel like I don't want to give my time till I have demonstrated evidence that there's trust in this process. And that's why I do feel like we started a good process um, this week, March 15th. But we have a long way to go to build trust among all the first parties and the people that have the longest histories. You know, they they really do deserve a facilitated and or mediated conversation to help figure out what is the value in their participation and why should they trust the process. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a couple highlights in your mind of the meeting last Wednesday, the 15th of March? Well, I like to celebrate every single success. So the first success was we got understanding and agreement on our uh, meeting um, ground rules or operational agreements that will help us in the next meetings, which is everyone's responsible for sharing in the success of the meeting each of us has to come with a collaborative spirit and a willingness to work together to help the JAG succeed. That was our most powerful ground rule. And um, the other is seeking understanding, you know, suspend judgment, seek understanding, use inquiry to learn more. Wow. Your, your perspective is really interesting, Chad, and tell me more about it. And quite frankly, being out in the woods with you and the others that took the time to join me Monday, was really powerful for me because I could more clearly understand your perspective, seeing it in the woods than reading about it. And I had done a lot of scoping and reading in advance, but it's that kind of understanding that's going to help us break through the gridlock and really see the challenges at Jackson in a more collaborative, open way um, as a, as a real group committed to this. So seeking understanding was really a really important um, operational agreement. And quite frankly, a couple members of the JAG suggested that um, as a, an operational agreement. So that's powerful. And everyone in the room agreed to it. So we went through each one and made sure people understood what we meant by that operational agreement, discussed it, and then got agreement on it. That's pretty powerful. I thought that was exciting. And the other great uh, success, I would say, is in the afternoon, the Jackson Advisory Group was asked by CAL FIRE to consider supporting the um, fuel break um, in Mitchell Creek off 550 that mm-hmm. was being discussed, and they were ready to move it forward. And I took off my facilitator hat and I said, I'm really uncomfortable with this because we don't have any tribal voices present. And we agreed back in 
the meeting in Fort Bragg that anything to do with co-management and tribal issues had to be addressed before coming to the JAG. And I don't see that that's happened here. Mm -hmm. so, So the JAG made a conditional agreement to support it pending um, you know, evidence from Cal Fire that they had reached out to the tribes, that they had eff- made an effort to get their input on that fuel raised project. And so that my understanding of the agreement without it being written down in front of me was that Cal Fire would work in good faith to engage the tribes, get their feedback on this specific project um, in the next 30 days. And um, then the JAG could approve or not approve it. Mm-hmm. So that was been... That was great. (laughs) And it's long overdue. What is your understanding of what was decided about the Gosper 500 timber sale? My understanding is that um, the timber sale itself uh, will expire May 15th, something like that. And um, that it most likely will expire May 15th. The THP that oversees that bigger picture is still open and in play for several years. So my understanding is that uh, Cal Fire has a lot of work to do with the stakeholders who have already invested in the plan as it was, and with the other stakeholders around the um, issues to figure out if and when it moves forward. And if so, what's it gonna look like? And um, how are all those impacted parties gonna be treated with respect and um, potentially some of those players with compensation? should the plan not go forward at all. Mm -hmm. So I want to back up slightly to your introduction. You were on the board of forestry. Is that correct? Very briefly. I made it um, on the board for about a year. I was going to be scheduled for my Senate confirmation hearings. And I uh, submitted a letter of resignation to the board. Um, I felt pretty strongly that it was, first of all, it's a lot of work. Everyone on the Board of Forestry has so much work. Every meeting is so much work of reading and preparation and and being ready and committed to talk about a diversity of issues that come before the board. And I don't know if the public fully respects or understands that. And I I, I do know that I worked really hard and it was a full-time job on top of my full-time job. Plus I'm a mother, you know, and a grandmother. So it was a lot of work and it didn't feel like a good use of my time. I felt like there were more productive ways to address these complex forestry issues than at the Board of Forestry. And at the time there was the process that, um, I can't even remember the number of the Senate bill that was going forward that brought all the collaborative groups together in a really you know focused, productive way that felt like that might be a better way. Certainly interagency communication collaboration needed to happen. And I didn't see that in my role on the board. And So it just, it didn't feel like a a great use of my time. And it was stressful for me, to be honest. Um, So I just couldn't handle it. Is there anything else you would like to add? I hope people can be patient. Patience is hard, especially when you're already frustrated and you feel like it's taken way too long already. And, you know, why should we trust this process? And you have no reason to trust the process. And you have no reason to trust me. I'm an unknown. I mean, people told me right away, like the fact that I'm a registered professional forester did not endear me with trust, right? I have to establish that trust, the process, and the people engaged in the process have to establish trust. And it does take time. And I think that that's the hardest thing in these collaborative conversations is that there's a lot of people that don't feel like we have the time 
and a lot of people that can't give that time. And, and I respect that. So everyone has to choose the path that works for them. And I respect that too. And I've just always been a collaborative spirit and I, I haven't um, found productivity in those other approaches for me as a professional. So I'm really hoping people will give us a chance and see how it goes. Well, Dr. Kim Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inspiring the confidence you're inspiring in all of us that you're you're now part of this. And I hope to talk to you again. Well, I sure hope I get asked to come back. And if I do get asked, I will uh, definitely consider it because I do feel like Kevin and his team are committed. Um, and the minute, you know, that those things changed um, or and I hope the public lets me know, too. Right. There's the public has to feel good about it because there's other facilitators they can look for. You can look for if this doesn't work. And I respect that, too. OK, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Kim Rodriguez, the state appointed facilitator for the Jackson Advisory Group. We are now going to hear from energy systems analyst and Nobel laureate for his work on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Evan Mills, Ph.D., I'm Dr. Evan Mills. I worked for about 35 years in the United States Department of Energy's National Laboratory System as an energy and environmental analyst, focusing on managing greenhouse gas emissions and understanding the impacts of climate change. This work included studies on the effects of climate change on wildfire. Many of my projects have been for California agencies and have also included extensive participation in the globally oriented work of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the second U.S. National Climate Assessment produced under the auspices of 13 federal agencies. I've lived in the town of Mendocino, California for about 15 years, raised my three kids here, and I'm a regular user of Jackson Demonstration State Forest. I've been following and participating in the discussion of logging in JDSF closely for some time now. I think we have an enormous untapped opportunity with Jackson if we can just break away from business as usual. JDSF and CAL FIRE could really become climate heroes, but there is a lot of ground between here and there. Last year, I attended a day-long forest walk in JDSF with Cal Poly Humboldt professor and world's expert on climate forests, Dr. Stephen Sillett, amazing guy. In examining trees marked for harvest under impending THPs, he repeatedly proclaimed, with notable consternation and surprise in his voice, that the planned logging reflected some of the worst practices, short of clear-cut, that he had seen. I was truly surprised to hear this, especially coming from him. As we moved through the forest, he remarked again and again about the backward approaches of what he called high-grading, the tree removals, which runs contrary, he said, to enhancing fire resilience, ecological restoration, and robust long-term carbon storage that can be achieved by leaving the larger trees. At day's end, he remarked that he had frankly expected to encounter a bunch of overzealous environmentalists on this walk, but then in fact, he found the concerns of the group to be quite scientifically valid. I'd like to focus for a moment on the question of forest carbon and climate change. I've found JDSF's past statements on this topic to be rather riddled with pseudoscience and even in some cases what you might call climate denialism and just simply lacking in the data and the transparency needed to have a productive discussion. What little carbon inventory and analysis I have seen from JDSF would not pass serious scientific review. As the saying goes, you can't manage what you don't measure. And here in Jackson, we're seeing this play out in the case of forest carbon. The need goes way beyond measuring board footage and crudely translating that into carbon. You need to understand the ecological stability of that carbon over long time frames, what's happening to the very large proportion of forest carbon that is at or below ground level, and suppression and removal of trees like tan oak and other vegetation that is not merchantable. 
You also need to understand how quickly the forest will regenerate, especially under the new stresses already present due to climate change, etc. It's often overlooked that much of the carbon in the trees doesn't even make it into durable lumber, so you have to track that too. We also have to remember that much of the lumber itself ends up in construction waste or doesn't last long enough to represent meaningful carbon storage over the time frames that really matter. One critical issue that keeps getting dodged is that even with the very most optimistic assumptions about post-logging forest recovery, the very slow rate of carbon being recaptured by regrowth means substantial net carbon emissions from logging well into the danger period clearly identified by the global scientific community for many years now. This means increased climate damages in our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes due to logging in JDSF. Yes, some forests are a tinderbox, but blaming that strictly on historic fire suppression is a misleading half-truth that masks the also significant role of logging practices such as those in JDSF that result in high densities of standing fuels, poorly managed slash, artificial forest openings that allow winds to dangerously stir and spread fire, a slash piles that generate embers that also spread fire, and lack of large trees and their precious moisture loads that can weather and slow the spread of fire. These observations are not the ravings of agitated citizens. They are the resounding findings of scores of peer-reviewed scientific articles, many of which have been forwarded to the JDSF staff. Bottom line here is that looking forward over the timeframes of importance, most logging has an equivalent effect on climate of burning fossil fuels. JDSF's logging practices are often more thoughtful than what we see on private lands, but they are still far from best practices, and management of JDSF's forests in general, and fire risks in particular, post-logging is nothing to be proud of. This must change, and it can change, if policymakers step forward and manage Jackson as a carbon treasure chest rather than a timber piggy bank. It's time to walk the talk and give science a seat at the table. That was Energy Systems Analyst and Nobel Laureate Evan Mills, Ph.D. You are listening to the Ecology Hour. I am Chad Swimmer, your host. We are discussing the Casper 500 Timber Harvest Plan in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Now let's hear from a selection of Casper residents. We're going to start off with Gene Parsons, then it'll be Dan Sweet, Ariana Bayer, Paul Ryber, and Star Decker. I'm Gene Parsons, and I've lived in Casper for 53 years, and I've worked in the logging industry from time to time. I was strongly opposed to the Cal Fire Timber Harvest Plan for Road 500 in the Jackson State Demonstration Forest, which was slated to go into effect this spring. I had my doubts about Cal Fire sanity when they decided to take the last big trees in the forest around here. Considering the state of our world at this time in history, I had hoped that Cal Fire, of all entities, would have had the wisdom to preserve the big trees for the health of the climate, the forest, its creatures, and for future generations. I was very disappointed in them. But now I see that Cal Fire may have begun to see the light as they are holding off on the logging and intend to rewrite the project. Uh, and they're going to consider input from the local tribes, wonderful, wonderful, and the public. Good for Cal Fire. Hopefully they will opt to actually be the stewards of the forest that they claim to be and not go for those short-term financial gains 
that cutting the big trees might provide. This is Dan Sweet. I'm a local mountain biker and environmentalist. In the past, I advocated for green building and lobbied on forestry protection. I support the certified sustainable forestry practiced in Jackson. Wood construction sourced from sustainable forestry is by far the lowest carbon footprint option we have for building homes. And that's why local sustainable forestry is in Governor Newsom's climate action plan. There are things that could be done better in Jackson, no doubt. But I sincerely believe that this sort of collaborative framework is the solution to our climate crisis. Hi, Chad. Thanks for doing this piece and inviting perspectives. Um, This is Ariana Bayer. I grew up on the North Coast and I live currently in Casper with my family. I'm on the Casper Community Board. As a resident, I'm very concerned about what happens in our um, larger shared backyard of Jackson State Forest, really the backyard of California. From what I've heard, the science of the climate crisis is not leading the way in the discourse that I hear from CAL FIRE, and I'd really like to hear that change. Thanks again, Chad. My name is Paul Ryber. I've lived in the Casper area for about 30 years. I'm a sculptor and woodworker. Um, I'm uh, very concerned that the logging will resume. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, I don't see any reason for it uh, other than uh, the greed of lumber companies. I would like to see it left alone, uh, cleaned up a little bit, and uh, be allowed to just grow on its own and be a real forest and be open to the public for hiking and biking and other recreational usages. Hi, my name is Star Decker, and I live in Casper, California, next to our wonderful Jackson State Forest. I'm a native of Mendocino County, so I grew up around our beautiful mountains, valleys, and coastal areas, which are rich with many varieties of trees. These redwoods are precious, and the environment they provide is highly important for all life forms. I believe we need to make amends for our past wrongdoings and not only save the forests that we have left, but incorporate the intuitive and cultural forest practices of our Native American tribes into the planning with sustainable management. We must cooperate and understand the needs of our planet first and lay aside the agendas that leave many caring folks out of the conversation. Those were the voices of various residents of Casper and the Mendocino Coast. Gene Parsons, who you probably realize has graciously given me lots of music to use for these shows. We also have Dan Sweet. Dan is the president of the Mendocino Coast Cyclists, and he really has put in a lot of time going to JAG meetings and going to the Recreation Task Force meetings. Next, we had Mendocino Coast native Ariana Bear, who's on the board of the Casper community. After that, we had Paul Ryber, who's lived in Casper for many, many years, and Star Decker, a Mendocino County native. I would like to introduce J.P. O'Brien. J.P. has been a postdoctoral research fellow for the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. He's presently a postdoctoral research affiliate at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. His research focuses on understanding climate variability and the physical processes that control it. He is a neighbor of JDSF, which borders his property on three sides. He also sits on the board of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt and is on the board of the Mendocino Trails here in Casper. We are on. J.P. O'Brien, 
Welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm good, Chad. How are you? I'm doing great. Could you give us a crude estimate of the carbon footprint of the Casper 500 timber harvest plan? Uh, sure. As they had it marked, I used the stand tables that provided by Cal Fire, and I used three different methods. Um, you know, pretty much independent. Some use the same assumptions, but you know, one starts from biomass, one is from a published study, um, and the other one just uses the uh, extracted board foot volume from. Uh, that timber harvest plan. And uh, interestingly enough, they're all within a few percent of each other. So one came out with 18,000 uh, metric tons of CO2, uh, one was 17,000 and one was 16,000. Um, so they're all, it, they all kind of are right in that range there. Does that include emissions from engines involved in the process? No, um, but ultimately uh, that uh, is pretty small relative to the amount of carbon that you're mobilizing from the forest itself. You know, that, that would only add a, uh, just a, a minor amount. For comparison's sake, one ton of CO2 is the equivalent to a 3,000-mile round-trip flight from Boston to London and back in a jumbo jet. It, it's quite a bit. Um, obviously, it's, it's nothing compared to the Willow Project, which I'm sure we've all heard about. You know, it's, it's, it's non-negligible, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the, the timber harvest plan process, which is considered CEQA equivalent, California Environmental Quality Act equivalent, you're supposed to look at alternatives to the project. And of course, you know, this is kind of a question that answers itself, but what would be the carbon footprint of doing nothing? I mean, yeah, if you're doing nothing, I mean, the carbon footprint is, you know, going to be, you know, zero in that, right, uh, in that time frame uh, versus managing it, right? Because even when you're when you're managing it, you know, you're, you are mobilizing carbon, you are uh, burning slash, um, you are sending things off to the mill. Um, and, you know, when you're not harvesting the forest, none of those things are happening. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the arguments that's, that we're dealing with is what if a high intensity fire goes through the timber harvest plant area? So timber harvest is considered a way considered by some a way of improving forest health and resiliency, and that the impact of a fire would be worse than the impact of logging. Can you speak to this? Obviously, we are in a uh, moving into a ever increasingly fire prone climate. Um, so this does increase the risk for fire. Uh, unfortunately, the, the narrative, you know, the popular narrative on this is, is somewhat wrong, right? Timber harvest, commercial timber harvest, right? This is, uh, overstory management. This is targeting the, generally the larger trees, uh, because those have the most board foot volume and those are the most commercially viable. Uh, that type of harvest tends to exacerbate, uh, fire, uh, risk in a forest. On an apples to apples basis, uh, harvest releases more carbon than fire does, right? Um, the reason, you know, in California specifically, uh, fire emissions are so high is because, you know, for example, like in 2020, uh, 4.5 million acres of forest land in California burned. That's um, mm -hmm. a lot of area. If you were to even do light uh, timber management in those same 4.5 million acres, the carbon emissions would be higher, right? So on an area per area basis, timber harvest is uh, always associated with uh, greater emissions because timber harvest kills more trees than fire does. Even in you know 2020, where we had this 4.5 million acres of fire that year, uh, do you want to take a guess at how much of that was high severity fire? No. About 5%. Wow. Right? So it's extremely small, right? So the majority of the fire in 2020, which is which was a very, you know, 
you'll say extreme year in terms of the area burnt, um, only about 5% was high severity. The majority was low to moderate severity. You know, overall uh, has uh, positive uh, ecosystem impacts, right? Um, you know, uh, pre-colonialization, the historical uh, area burned in California was about 4.5 million acres per year. So over these last, you know, 100 years, there's been a severe deficit of fire, right? <laughs> um, so, so ultimately, this kind of argument uh, that, you know, we need to log our forests to protect them, um, you know, uh, falls apart when you're talking about commercial management. Um, and it, and it, you know, even falls apart when you're talking about even understory management, because even that is associated with uh, generally higher, higher carbon emissions than than fire. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know it's not fair to say that this plan was written up as fire prevention because it was written five, four to five years ago, and it was before the Santa Cruz County Lightning Complex fire when most people weren't thinking of coastal redwood forests as being that vulnerable. But it's being spoken of now as improving the resiliency of the, you know, the 500 acre plan area. As it's written, do you see that as being the case? No. Because, um, uh, again, they are, you know, if you look at the stand tables and what they're taking, uh, you know, they're managing from the smallest trees that they're taking are, are 12 inches and up all the way up to 77 inches, right? Um, and so they're harvesting across all these class sizes um, and these bigger trees that are being taken out. Those are our most fire resilient trees. Those are the trees that are, you know, the real overstory. Those are the ones that are capturing fog and uh, transport, dripping it down to the ground, right? Those are keeping the understory moist and cool and uh, acting as effective windbreaks. Um, you know, the fact that they're kind of harvesting across such a wide range uh, tree sizes you know, in the end, it probably uh, breaks even to increases fire danger uh, a little bit, right? The proportion of trees that are under 12 inches, right? So in this, you know, six to 12 inch range, mm -hmm. uh, does not, it actually increases because they're not managing across those, right? So you have a higher proportion of small, easily combustible trees and ladder fuels post-harvest, right? Mm -hmm. um, not to mention if they're not doing any kind of slash management, which historically, uh, Jackson has not been good at, um, as we've all kind of seen, um, that increases surface fuel loads, um, which can, you know, drive, which drives, you know, fire, right? And so, um, so the combination of increasing proportion of small trees plus increased surface fuel load uh, in the presence of non, you know, non-treatment um, would tend to exacerbate fire behavior. Mm -hmm. So you put together a um, different projected stand table, different alternative harvest for Casper 500. Can you speak about that briefly? It was just kind of an experimental, you know, trying to play around um, with the numbers to see, you know, if you really did want to do a harvest that was going to uh, truly decrease fire danger, um, you know, how, how, what would that look like in terms of, you know, the proportion of trees, how many trees per acre there are, um, and, and essentially, I mean, there are a lot of trees in Casper 500. So the the stand table Cal Fire provided showed that there are about 500 trees per acre. This is what, you know, one would call an overstocked forest. But remember, that's only in terms of, you know, the number of trees per acre. I don't really like the term overstocked because, um, you know, if we were to think about carbon, 
is that forest overstocked from a carbon perspective? No, it's not. It holds far less carbon than the historical forest there did, right? So it's understocked from a carbon perspective, but overstocked from a trees per acre perspective. How does that happen? Well, because most of the carbon storage is stored in the largest trees, and because there is a dearth of the largest trees due to historic logging, um, and there's an overabundance of small trees, right? So you have too many small trees, not enough big trees, hence you have less carbon on the landscape than you historically had, but more trees per acre than you historically had. So how do you balance that? And that really comes down to that if you're going to manage, uh, you want to be managing across the smaller tree class sizes to help balance the forest, you know, to reduce uh, fire danger, because most of the fire danger comes from this high, highly dense concentration of small trees that act as ladder fuels and easily combustible fuels compared to the larger trees, which are very fire resistant. So ultimately, um, you know, my, my kind of conception of if you were going to manage Casper 500, you know, how would you do it uh, to benefit the trees, the residual tree stand, right, to reduce competition between these 500 trees per acre, which is way too many, right? Um, and so just to kind of put this in perspective, um, you know, uh, there are, uh, for Cal Fire's original harvest plan, um, there were 500 trees per acre. Uh, after uh, their post-harvest stand had 480 trees per acre. So it's really no change in the overstocking, right? And that's again, because they're harvesting across all class sizes and they're a lot of the, a lot of the volume that from that plan comes from the larger tree class sizes. If you put it in perspective, a historical perspective, a lot of the, the stands had 20 or less trees per acre before logging started 165 years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, an old growth forest is, you know, it, it, what it does, it naturally decreases the trees per acre to concentrate, you know, all that, you know, mass into the largest, most, you know, uh, vigorously growing trees. Mm-hmm. Oh, in you, your investigation of LIDAR, uh, looking at all of Northern California, you've noted that um, JDSF looks more carbon rich than all, most of the industrial timberlands surrounding it. And you have a problem with this. So can you talk about that? Well, if you're taking the regional perspective and looking at the Redwood Forest region as a whole, JDSF looks pretty good compared to industrial timberlands that surround it. You know, so, I mean, it calls into question, you know, how is JDSF being used as a a demonstration for us? Because the narrative goes um, that, you know, what is done on JDSF is an example for how private timberland should be run. But we don't see what's happening on JDSF being translated to uh, the private timberlands. So, I mean, ultimately there needs to be, uh, I think at some point, a change in the forest practice rules to uh, reflect what is happening on Jackson, uh, you know, so it's actually implemented on the private timberlands that surround it. So we can start seeing the private timberlands putting on more biomass um, you know, and hence carbon sequestration, you know, regionally, right? Because what's happening on Jackson is really only just, you know, a drop in the bucket. So the inventory of standing timber on JDSF is is as high as any working forest around. But my question, if one follows the harvest numbers from the 1990s, when logging in Jackson was not very light touch, this was before Vince Taylor's lawsuits and the eight-year pause on logging, how do you think the inventory would look now? if logging had continued at the pace of the 90s up until 2023. Sure. Well, so prior to Vince Taylor's lawsuit, 
the uh, kind of the uh, operating, uh, the standard operating procedure for Jackson was to cut or was to harvest equal to growth, right? And so ultimately, like, and again, if you look at the CFI numbers from the period between 1954 and, you know, the mid to late 80s, uh, the CFI didn't really change all that much. And that is, you know, kind of taken as evidence that they were indeed harvesting all the volume that grew, right? The fact that the inventory wasn't changing. So without Vince Taylor's lawsuit, that would have continued, right? So ultimately, um, what would have, you know, the, the inventory would have not changed, right? So the pre-Vince uh, lawsuit inventory would be the inventory we had today if they stuck with harvest equal to growth, which was about 1.1 uh, billion board feet. You know, we're currently at about anywhere from 2.2 to 2.5 billion board feet. And that increase in inventory is a direct result of uh, not harvesting for about a decade, a little less than a decade during the lawsuit time. And then subsequently after harvesting began again around 2009 or 2010, moving to harvest half equal to growth, right? And so that had a huge impact on the forest and it was able to put on substantial amounts of biomass, equivalently uh, sequester a lot of carbon during that time. Well, JP O'Brien, thank you very much. Are there any thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, well, you know, I, one of the things that, you know, kind of just going back to the forest practice rules and um, private timberlands, you know, one of the things that Jackson does notably different um, than private timberlands is their basal area retention. Basal area retention is a measurement term, which essentially means how much of the basal area, the tree base area per acre is retained after harvest. Uh, for most of Jackson's plan plans, they they uh, leave about you know fifty to sixty percent of the pre-harvest basal area. Um, so this translates you know for kind of average stocking in Jackson to about one hundred and fifty feet squared of basal area. For private timberlands, uh, the minimum stocking regulated for civ uh, selection civiculture is seventy five square foot feet squared. And now that doesn't mean a lot because, you know, what's 75 feet squared of basal area. But to kind of put that in perspective, uh, you're familiar with the mama tree, um, as are most a lot of your listeners. The mama tree is a redwood in the Casper 500 area that's about six and a half feet in diameter. It was the first tree that had a tree sit in it. The mama tree is pretty big, but she's basically an infant in redwood terms, somewhere between 150, 200 years old, maybe even less. The basal area associated with the mama tree just by itself is 32 feet squared, right? So just retaining that tree alone in selection civiculture would get you halfway to your minimum stocking uh, regulated by the forest practice rules, just that one tree, oh. right? So that kind of puts into perspective how little 75 feet squared of basal area retention is for post-harvest stocking. And this is why we see our private timberlands cut over all up and down the North Coast and holding very low biomass when they should be the most biomass dense forest in the world, right? And it all comes down to uh, this post-harvest stocking standard, which, you know, if we're going to use Jackson as a model, 150 does a lot better than 75. It's always twice the harvest. It's twice the minimum stocking standard. And that has had a big impact on what this forest and why this forest looks like what it does. Yeah, but thinking about it, that's still less than five mama trees per acre. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, you know, redwood forests evolve uh, over very long periods of time. So, um, you know, it, it's there, there's there's a lot to, I guess, uh, consider and unpack when you're thinking about a redwood forest and how it evolves over millennial timescales. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, right. Uh, you know, five mama trees would get you up to, uh, you know, a, a 150, you know, you know, ultimately that was the largest tree that they had marked for harvest in the plan. Um, and, you know, we don't know how many mama trees are actually in, you know, 77 DBH trees are actually in the Casper 500. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I just wanted to contextualize the difference between what happens in Jackson and, you know, what happens on private timberlands. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and um, look forward to having you back on the show. Sure. Thanks, Chad. That was J.P. O'Brien, a climate scientist, a neighbor of JDSF, a member of the board of EPIC and the Mendocino Trail Stewards, and somebody who's really helped make sense of all this science for me. So in making this show, I reached out to Coyote Valley Band of Pomo tribal elder Priscilla Hunter for comment, but she said that they were not able to make a comment at the moment. The last thing I want to mention is is that if you would like to be one of the people who's putting in your opinion on how future management of Jack's demonstration state forest should look, you should put June 6th on your calendar for the next Jackson Advisory Group meeting. It is an all-day commitment, although the first half of the day is when much of the discussion and business takes place. That is Tuesday, June 6th, location to be determined. Thank you for spending the last hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on the Ecology Hour. I hope you learned as much as I did making this show. I would like to thank Kevin Conway, Kim Rodriguez, Evan Mills, J.P. O'Brien, Dan Sweet, Ariana Bear, Paul Ryber, Star Decker, and Gene Parsons for contributing their voices to the show. As always, the views and opinions expressed are those and only those of myself and my guests, and not those of the management or staff of any station that chooses to air this show. This show was produced on Audacity's open source software for sound editing by a small staff in an even smaller studio on the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California, America. It originally aired on KZYXNC, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. It comes to you via the invisible but carbon-intensive magic of the internet. If you want to share this show with a friend or listen to any of the back episodes of any of my shows, go to www.disquietmedia.blue. If you would like to comment on anything you heard here, email me at cswimmr at gmail.com. See you next time.